0: I do want to uh, just reiterate that the point of these conversations is really to make the best of the opportunities that are available to us right now to connect with our global ummah. I understand that many people are, uh, are, are rightfully quite uh, disenchanted and quite disaffected by the fact that we are, uh, we are restricted on our ability to go to the Masajid. We, are, we, we face the first Ramadan in generations to, uh, globally that we experienced away from the Masajid. And now uh, we're experiencing uh, the, the first 10 days of the Hijjah without the hedge right and without uh, you know and we're gonna have another Eid here without uh, without the ability to celebrate as as usual. so in light of those difficulties what kind of opportunities um, can can we make use of and step back and maybe connect and think and reflect about some of the some of the things that our, our community is going through thinking about, and uh, some of the larger questions. And so it's with a great honor and privilege and humility that I get to moderate and discuss and be in conversation with two, two uh, peer teachers of mine, I would like to call them. These are folks that are, uh, that I've known for quite some time, um, remarkable teachers and friends and colleagues. And uh, I'm just excited to be able to bring them with you today. We have with us Ostada Zainab Ansari, who is a scholar in residence at Taysir Seminary. Ostada Zainab Ansari, if you do not already know her, is, is a, a leading voice in uh, the Orlum Adin, uh, amongst American Muslim scholars today. She is responsible for over a decade of teaching and engaging students in various parts of the country. I've had the fortunate privilege of working with Ostada. Jazakallah sister, uh, Khair, sister, and excuse me for calling you sister sometimes, Ostada Zainab. Um, we've known each other for so long. So, to uh, Zaklachir uh, again, Oster Zainab, for joining us. But um, also with us today is Doctor, Doctor Hisham Helier, a senior scholar at the Azawiya Institute and also a scholar at the Cambridge Muslim College. I also have been uh, fortu- fortunate enough to uh, to have known Doctor Helier for a number of years, and uh, to as a testament of kind of uh, what what kind of world we live in here. It's funny. I think Dr. Helier we we've been in, in conversation for quite a long time, but it was only within the last year or so that I think we ever actually met in person. So subhanallah, it's a, it's a pleasure to meet meet you uh, in in this digital you know space again. And thank you again for joining us. For those of you who do not know uh, Dr. Hisham, please uh, follow him. His biography actually is just a bit too uh, a bit too uh, lengthy and accomplished. Mashallah to uh, to go through every piece but hopefully we will get to know both of our guests a little bit more uh dr Helio stanley Zainab, how are you both doing
1: alhamdulillah thank you dr abbas <laughs> i hope everybody can hear me i'm also uh trying to get my children to stop streaming all kinds of content right now
0: <laughs> yeah exactly It's what i'm dealing with right now dr hisham how are you doing Alhamdulillah.
2: it's a great pleasure to be invited to be a part of this conversation um, I'm very pleased to see both of you and to be engaging with the Medina audience, inshallah.
0: Jazakallah again for being with us. Um, let me uh, go ahead and begin, if you don't mind, just, um, just by asking both how, how both of you have been doing during this pandemic, during this extended time now of isolation and quarantine. And, uh, and really, I'd like to know, frankly, to give people uh, a sense of sort of what goes on in the normal lives of teachers and, and scholars. What kind of things have you been doing to keep yourself uh, keep yourself sane? I mean, what kind of hobbies? What kind of activities outside of the work and outside of the passion that you have for the for the ulum? What is uh, what kind of things have you been doing to keep yourself sane?
1: Thank you, uh, Dr. Abbas and Dr. Hisham. That's very gracious of you. It's really my pleasure and honor to be here on this distinguished panel and to have this conversation with Dr. Hisham and Dr. Abbas and our esteemed audience members. Again, I pray that everybody can hear me. So that's an interesting question. I mean to be honest Dr. Abbas, I have just really kind of used this opportunity to catch up on projects that I've kind of uh, that that I've fallen behind on. Um, my normal teaching schedule is a full load of classes at Taysir Seminary where I am here um, in East Tennessee in the southeast of the United States. Um I can't, I don't know that I've taken on any hobbies. I, I would love to say that I, I started a garden or I, I don't know, I, I learned how to fish or something of that nature. But, um, alhamdulillah, you know, this has been a really interesting opportunity for just spending time with some quality time with my, with my children. i um, actually introducing them to new hobbies quite interestingly and uh, catching up on some reading. Um, it's not been the most relaxing reading, I have to say, most of it being on, um, sort of geopolitics in the Middle East, but alhamdulillah, um, I'm grateful to have that opportunity to have uh, had a little uh, bit more time because normally I spend this time traveling and, and, and going to different programs and, and retreats and what have you.
0: Well, as long as it's enjoyable to you and it's something that uh, that you're catching up on, alhamdulillah, it's always uh, it's, uh, it's always good to hear. Dr. Hisham, any secrets and any new hobbies?
2: Um, well, I'd say that, you know, bismillah, um, alhamdulillah, wa wa ala wa sahbihi wa To be quite honest with you, it's been a busier time than usual uh, partly because you know alhamdulillah we all recovered but my whole family contracted the coronavirus oh that's uh,
0: right excuse uh, me alhamdulillah we all we that's
2: all that's recovered me. you know so uh, we recovered quite some time ago but that just you know wiped us out for a bit um and you know the lockdown um proved to be quite challenging i think you know for many people especially people with families uh, i have uh, I have three children, and having them at home has definitely been uh, one of the most, um, uh, how should we say, intriguing periods to to deal with. Um, and also because of of the of the whole lockdown and the virus and its impact on our congregational activities. Um, I'm a member of the Council for the British Board of Scholars and Imams in the UK, um, and I also am affiliated with the Azaria Institute in Cape Town, and. Um, in different ways, those institutions had to sort of respond to the challenge of lockdown, uh, and so that meant you know new pieces of guidance that came out that you know we had to write and sort of advise people about their uh, their situation under lockdown in terms of Juma, in terms of Eid, and and so on. So you know that was I, I, I have to say I'm very grateful to have been able to be a part of all of that, but um, it certainly was a, a certain amount of work. Um, I also do teaching at Cambridge Muslim College, and you know our students continued uh, to do their classes. Uh, but alhamdulillah, we were set up quite well to do things over the internet and so on. Um, and uh, in the analytical arena, um, and as you say, that's where we we first encountered each other. Uh, there's certainly been a great deal of interest uh, within the sort of think tank academic world as to how COVID nineteen. Uh, impinges on international affairs. Um, so via the Royal Institute in London and, and the Carnegie Endowment in D.C., I've been doing a fair amount of writing and research in that regard. Um, so it's really been quite a busy time, I, yeah, I have to say. I, I find it very um, very bizarre when I see things online saying, oh, you know, lockdown, it means that you can develop all of these new skills that you never thought you had or do new reading. And uh, personally, I don't, I, I, I have far less time in my day than uh, what I usually had, I have to say. Although I don't travel anymore, obviously. Um, I used to travel at least, you know, once every six weeks at the bare minimum. And often, you know, once every two or three weeks. Uh, so this is the longest time I've not traveled in quite some time, uh, which is probably much better for our ozone, to be fair.
0: No, of course, it's. Uh, I, I understand what you're saying, especially um, the kind of work that we do. A lot of, A lot of talking, a lot of writing, a lot of reading. <laughs> Mm. the fact is is that now everybody knows where you are you know people can catch you wherever you know people can always invite you to a zoom meeting and i find myself you know re, you know remembering the days when we, if we had a webinar or a digital podcast or something like this this was like a rare unique kind of treat this was like a, a nice sort of thing to do and now it's just uh it's getting exhausting but alhamdulillah i think there are ways in which uh, we are all connecting and and learning actually um more than we have in the past, and so, inshallah, we can find a rhythm, and this can be past us soon enough, and that we can heal and establish a new, a new normal, inshallah, something that uh, is a better world going forward. So, uh, let me go ahead and uh, set the stage for our audience, if you don't mind, just for a moment. Um, and uh, that is that is today's talk. Again, part of this global conversation, uh, global conversations on spirituality and leadership. Today's talk is entitled. Provocatively, and I'll take responsibility for suggesting and recommending parts of this title, is uh, beyond dhikr or more than Dikr, uh spirituality and the path to healing. And the, the truth of the matter is that uh, I used that title and I suggested that title to uh, to sort of incite a debate and sort of begin a conversation around um, uh, around this discussion about politics spirituality, religious learning, social engagement, civic engagement, sort of hot button topics today, especially as the world is seeing so much unfold in the, in the wake of the BLM uh, protests and the BLM, uh, BLM resistance movements and calls for abolition and reconstruction of all kinds of different structures in our societies and confrontation with, with uh, historical legacies of oppression and discrimination. So the discussion today is intended to center politics and spirituality and uh, this is coming after my, uh, my advice from my parents. I said, if you want to keep friends, don't ever talk about politics or religion. Well, I find myself only talking about politics and religion. And so today's conversation is provocatively um, aimed at discussing balancing these things. Um, but excuse me, before we get started, uh, and Sister uh, Ostad and Zainab, I'll come to you with the first question provocatively. But before we get, uh, before we get started, uh, Dr. Hisham, I'd like to extend uh, my condolences on behalf of uh, the Medina Institute USA, our students, our teachers, our, our peers, on the recent passing of your Sheik uh, Siraj Hendricks. He was a light to many of us, to the world over, and to you especially. I know the ulama have a saying that our teachers are more beloved and dear to us sometimes than our own fathers. And so with that, on behalf of us, we read al-Fatiha and we, and we, we remember him in our du'as. And we want to extend our condolences, Dr. Isha. So let me go ahead and uh, begin. Osad Zainab, um, I'm going to uh, go ahead and jump in with this question. Um, Many folks in our communities, both young and old, have criticized the traditional sciences for an alleged, their presumed lack of social or civic engagement. But you often hear people say things like, we can't sit around and do dhikr all day, we can't just sit in the masajid. You come from a family and a background with deep roots in social and political engagement, nationally and internationally. You're also a teacher of the usul and the alimadeen in some of the ways that people, you know, think about when they think about a traditional life of uh, a life of piety and pursuing uh, the sciences. So, what what do you say to yourself or to others when you come across such criticisms?
1: Rahim. Thank you, Dr. Abbas. You now, I've been actually reflecting on the, the title of the webinar, um, Beyond the it's, it's kind of interesting, um, and I wanted to actually talk to you a little bit more about that. You know, let me just um, preface my response by saying, what's so interesting, first of all, about this period um, being endorsed because of this global pandemic is that counterintuitively, I've actually been asked over the last um, four months now to focus on issues of social and racial justice from behind my computer screen, far more than I've been asked to actually address issues of fiqh or usul or 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 or, or, the, or mustalah al hadith or any of the topics that I, that I would typically be be addressing in my capacity as an instructor um, at Taseer Seminary. So it's it's very interesting that. Um, You know, there's this sort of, I almost feel like I'm in this period of stasis right now, but really addressing some of the most pressing issues confronting um, our communities, our our nation at large, and even, you know, issues that really have a a global resonance. Uh,
0: Was that, sorry, excuse me, was that as a result of the the protests, of the George Floyd protests, or even before that? Absolutely.
1: You know, it was really... um, so there was kind of this interesting interval when the, when the when COVID-19 was in was was first declare, declared a, a global pandemic. Um, you know I remember well not really personally but sort of our seminary and Shah Hassan at the seminary kind of filled in questions about you know how do we deal with the fiqh of this issue. And so initially there was kind of an interest in um, can you kind of address from a, st- from a spiritual standpoint, you know, how we can manage our frustration and anxiety over this? So I did some work on... Um uh, with uh, on ibn al-alayman's book on patience and gratitude and taught some lessons around that but then uh, immediately in the wake of the killing of george floyd on monday may 25 memorial day in in minneapolis then um you know i found myself fielding all these requests and i always felt like i was really not really the least qualified given all these years i've spent teaching fiqh and, cedar and what have you uh, to look at these topics of you know racism within the Muslim community and of course outside of that as well but you know what's so interesting is that this this question you know back to this question of you know are scholars out of touch you know I I really at this point I'm, I'm very reluctant to um to to sort of uphold whether it's caricatures of scholars on the one hand or our perceptions of activists on the other because I don't You know, having addressed this over the last few years, having had conversations around this over the last few years, I don't see that this is a very helpful way of of examining relationships within the community, so intra-Muslim affairs, as well as beyond our community, because in reality... All of us have a stake in these issues. Whether we think that we're, you know, whether we think that, you know, we're we're sort of political or apolitical, all of us ultimately have a have a stake in in, in this issue. Um, but having said that, I do think that it is um, that we actually are doing ourselves a disservice. I'm speaking about people who are dot and and, and and scholars and and in and, and that that category, that we are doing ourselves a disservice by By sort of positioning ourselves as sort of tradition as traditional Muslims or traditionalists kind of over here uh, in that corner working on whatever we're working on as if we have nothing to do with, with what's happening in our communities. we're doing ourselves a disservice and again we're kind of reinforcing various tropes, various stereotypes and, and, and again this idea of of the activists that are out there and they don't have any connection to religion, I mean it, it's I think it's kind of um, a convenient way of of kind of dismissing the work that people are doing but again it's not really accurate it's not you know i was just i wanted to I'm, obviously i want to hear from dr hisham on this but i was just reading an ayah in the quran that i think it really kind of speaks to to the early community and how they were able to bring together the the foremost of activism and dhikr and spirituality and that's in um, the 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 episode that we see in uh, chapter four, I think verse 103, 104, that describes the 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 salat al they were praying during that time. I actually want to come back to that point because I think it's going to help to illustrate certain things. But um, I, I just think this idea that we're going to set up these opposing camps, it's just not a helpful approach anymore.
0: And and uh, it sounds like you don't actually think it's even accurate. That no, it doesn't seem no, to be the no. case. That and it sounds almost like there are different people in our community, or different sort of not people but really ways of talking about each other that seem to be a do, doing a disservice. So no, thank you for that. Um, Dr. Hisham, uh, I'd love obviously for you to respond to that. Um, but before that, I'd like to ask you a question. Now, you and I obviously know each other through a number of different channels, but it was largely through the academic and policy circles in DC and London and other spaces um, that, that we've encountered. Um, These are spaces at the heart of politics, activism, media, and it wasn't until years later that I learned of our common connections through teachers and students and studies of uh, of Islam. So how do you balance your work in the policy, you know, in the policy community and the academic community with your commitment to spiritual and religious practices? For, for you personally, do these stand in tension?
2: So I think if you consider any realm of human activity that anybody can get involved with, you're going to have to deal with uh, questions of ethics, right? Um, it doesn't matter if it's media. It could be politics. It could be medicine. It could be education. Um, it, it could be finance. It could be anything, really. Um, and I think that people are... Uh, are not particularly honest with themselves if they don't admit that from the get-go. So in that regard, I think the political arena, the uh, media arena, uh, the analytical arena um, is not quite so different. What might be different and what probably is different is the amount of attention that comes onto you when you do that, right? Because being in public life means you're not simply uh, dealing with the people who are in front of you, uh, but you're dealing with, you know, sometimes thousands and hundreds of thousands of people um, who are trying to put pressure uh, for particular positions to be taken as opposed to others. Okay, so uh, tension, um, sure, there's tension, but I think that you have tension pretty much in anything and everything. Um, and I remember when I first engaged in policy, uh, I was frankly extremely reluctant um, it was right after the 7th of July bombings in the United Kingdom. Um, I just finished my PhD. Um, I didn't have the slightest bit of, um, of intention or interest into going into any anything to do with policy whatsoever or the media or anything like that. I was really just looking for um, a straightforward academic career. Um, and somebody from government called me up, uh, I think a few weeks after the bombings took place, if not. Uh, if not less than that and asked me to uh, to serve as the deputy head of uh, a government uh, working group on tackling uh, radicalization extremism and, and my my instinctive response was I don't know if I want to do that of course, um, yeah. and uh, I said I'll have to get back to you because on the one hand it was a moment of you know very how should I say um, it was a very difficult time in the UK at that particular point, um, because of the bombings, because of all the questions that arose, um, because of the, the violence that had been visited upon London at the time. Um, and because of that alone, I thought, maybe I shouldn't be so hasty as to say no. Uh, but I took I took some time, and I did speak to different teachers of mine and ask them what they thought. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, was, I remember being surprised that the way in which my teachers approached it was actually very methodological and wasn't quite so, um, you know, blanket no or yes. It was, well, if X is true, then you should do A. If Y is true, then you should do B. You know, if you have this kind of patience, you should consider it. If you don't have Mm -hmm. this kind of patience, you shouldn't consider it. You know, it was a very methodological approach, which I appreciated, but also something that frankly is going to be the case in, in probably any profession. So um, I'm not saying it's easy, um, and I do think there are unique pressures that exist within that arena, um, and you do have to constantly check yourself. But I think that on some level, you have to do that in pretty much anything that you do. Um, and coming back to what Zena was, was talking about, um, uh, first, I thoroughly agree. Um, uh, I think that there's also um, a wider set of assumptions here that might be necessary for us to unpack Um, Now, uh, perhaps unlike many of your listeners, I engage within Western Muslim communities as a Western Muslim. Um, So, you know, the discussion that we're having, I think, reflects that a lot. Um, But I'm also an Arab. You know, I'm an Englishman on my father's side and I'm an Arab on my mother's side. And I'm very invested and engaged in that arena as well. And uh, through that, I meet Muslim communities um, that are actually very different than quote-unquote the organized Muslim communities um, in in places like the United States or Canada or the UK where I'm from. Um, I mean Muslims who are very openly Muslim and that they, they have a Muslim identity but aren't particularly religious, engage in activism um, in pursuit of upholding uh, fundamental freedoms and human rights and so on, and... Uh, in many of those societies, you'll see people who perhaps come from more religious backgrounds or have decided to practice their religion, and they won't really view that, that section of their societies as really having much to do with religion. And I do think that that's quite, uh, quite a poor assumption to take. Okay? Um, and I say it on the basis of experience, that some of these people are they are not only some of the most bravest people that I've met in my life, but also, they are people that have, uh, I'd say, a very complicated relationship with religion. Um, but they're not necessarily people who have disavowed their religion. Um, sometimes they don't feel that there's any space for them. Um, uh, and I've been, uh, I've, I've seen quite a number of times people within those arenas who are not uh, who are not conservative, but who really do believe uh, in Allah and His Prophet. Okay, and uh they uh, they will surprise I think many of us as a result of that um there's a there's an old story of uh, of one of my on, l- l-
0: sorry before before you jump into the story so just to make clear to our audience these are people that that you're identifying as committed to to human rights causes for example or to human committed to yeah. like environmental justice and yeah. I too have met them where where when you encounter them they're actually guided by very deep, deep religious principles and ideas and they see um, they see their Islam realized in some way in their work. Is that a fair, is that a fair approach? Yes, but, I, but I think also, um, so you will find
2: many people who, for example, would have gone to, I mean, if we go back to the West Roman, would have gone through their MSAs or their ISOCs in the UK and they would have been involved in quote unquote Muslim student politics um, and then they'll go into human rights organizations and things like that, but they would have, quote-unquote, graduated from a kind of uh, organized Muslim uh, kind of experience, right? Um, I'm not really talking about people like that because they still come from that, quote-unquote, yeah. organized Muslim community. Um, I'm talking about people who never would have been a part of anything like that, um, but are still very much linked to their religious tradition um, And uh, sometimes very secretly, um, maybe not very obviously, um, but still tremendously important to them. Um, Even if they, you know, I mean, uh, as I said, they might not be practicing, okay, Um, but they still believe. And uh, I I, I just want to say that to bring out some of the, the complexities involved in this. Okay? Not to say that, you know, oh, well, this means that you then watered down the religion or anything like that. I'm not interested in that. But just just to recognize that people are where they are, they're at what they're at, and I think that it behooves those of us who truly try to follow the Prophet ﷺ to simply recognize that he dealt with people as they were mm. and then tried to encourage them to become better at what they were. Um And I think that's important. I think that's a uh, an important impetus, and certainly one that I saw um, with people, that, and you mentioned Al-Marhum, Sheikh Siraj, Rahimahullah. Um, Sheikh Siraj uh, was an activist himself um, when he was younger. Uh, actually, while he was a student at Um Al-Qura, um, he would come back to Cape Town uh, for his summer holidays. And it was during one trip like that where he was um, he was on a march against apartheid um, and uh, he was arrested and imprisoned as a result um, and uh, Ibrahim Rasul uh, who many of you know and who was a part of your uh, your discourses um, last time, he was actually with him on one of those marches and um, Ibrahim Rasul recollects how he and other activists would engage with someone like Sheikh Suraj to see how their activism which was in a very you know, quote-unquote non-Islamic kind of milieu, okay? The anti-apartheid movement in, in South Africa wasn't an Islamic movement, okay? Even though they were deeply committed Muslims. Um, uh, and they, they were very happy to be able to find somebody that they could
0: talk to on that sort of level. Um, anyway. Um, uh, no, no, exactly. Actually, there's a, I think uh, South Africa provides great examples and actually concrete, you know, co- concrete examples from our reality really do uh, push back against a lot of these perceptions and and sort of stereotypes that we that we have. Uh, Dr. Hisham, do you have questions for each other? Do you wanna respond? Do you wanna to respond to anything or engage Dr. Hisham on any of this kind of basic basic point?
1: I do, so I, I have several questions for, for you, Dr. Hisham. So the students that I teach are really a very interesting subset within a subset of the American Muslim population, and that these are young people Many of whom actually come from activist backgrounds, really kind of from from the mSAs. and and um, for for a lot of the students that come to our seminary, they really are looking for something that feels just a little bit more multi-dimensional, say, than the experience of 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 worship and activism they've actually had through their organizations in college and and what have you. So, it was very interesting to me that you mentioned again, a couple different categories here, people that sort of graduated from an organized Muslim experience. And then on the other hand, activists who have a very complicated relationship with religion. So I'd like to get a sense, you know, given the fact that it, the students that I tend to interact with are again, a subset within a subset, because it's, we, you know, it's been kind of interesting to even find, um, you know, sort of observant, um, engaged, uh, you know, Muslim youth who actually will want to take a full year out of the busyness of life, away from school, you know, off the career track to actually focus, you know, have kind of like this immersive one-year experience in spirituality and worship and Islamic studies. And, you know, one of the things that we've been trying to gauge is um, in terms of the demographics of the American Muslim uh, population, that is there sort of, I don't want to call them a silent majority, but is there... This this demographic that we've not been able to reach. People who actually are are they are connected to various causes, progressive causes, social justice causes, that while not having overtly disavowed Islam for whatever reason have distanced themselves from you know the organizations, massajid. Um, you know, more more traditionalist circles and why that's the case, because I'm very interested in that group of people. Because my experience, Dr. Hisham, has been that, and this is kind of maybe going back some years, but having lived in the Middle East and encountering very secular Muslims and actually looking at and overt hostility that they would often kind of demonstrate to religious people and religion. So this is very interesting to me that you have this group of people who, again, they have this complicated relationship with Islam, as you said, but they haven't disavowed the religion. And I'd like to get a sense of, you know, in their, in their what is it about sort of scholars or alama traditional structures? They've not found sort of, um, buy-in right with that sort of organized way of being a muslim that they've sought other avenues what's going on with them
2: so i think that's a very good sort of way to open this up i thank you for that very much Estella Zainab. Uh, and i do think though that the answer really differs depending on where we're talking about okay so um as a brit my experience is very different than yourself as an american Um, even though I I think I understand the American context fairly well just because I've spent so much time there and I do work in D.C. Um, But the the dynamics are very different. Um, The backgrounds of the communities are very different in terms of migration, but also in terms of the fact that in the United States, um, the largest section of your community isn't of recent migrant extraction. That's quite different to the U.K. and so on and so on and so on. when it comes to uh, different parts of the Arab world um, and the broader sort of Middle East, again, it's it's also very different. So, you know, um, uh, so for example, talking about a country like Egypt, uh, Egypt is a country I know really well. Um, uh, I know exceedingly few, exceedingly few Egyptians um, who are secularists. Okay. And I mean that very seriously because I think that a lot of people just misunderstand what that means in a country like Egypt. Egypt um, uh, Egypt isn't a country where religion is up for grabs uh, vis- uh, versus secularism. You might be able to say that in perhaps a country like Tunisia or a country like Turkey, where you actually have strong proponents of a deeply secularist uh, uh, Tradition—you don't really have that in a place like Egypt, except like literally a handful of people from the upper uh, upper socioeconomic elites. Um, uh, otherwise, it's more the discussion about how religion engages in the public sphere, or how religion engages in politics, or how religion engages in in your personal mm-hmm. life, and that's very different. Okay, um, and the. Uh, Uh, When it comes to that sort of section of society, and this, I think, cuts across also um, across Muslim communities more generally, not just in the West, but worldwide, is if they don't feel that they can go to um, the traditional ulama um, for advice or for guidance, then sure, we can say that there's something wrong with them. Um, But I think that there's also the question to be asked about, so why don't they feel like that? Right, um, And I don't want to keep on bringing up Sheikh Suraj. Allah Hamo um, oh, yeah. because I think that it's, uh, 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 yeah, and I'm sure there are many other people who like that. But people like Sheikh Suraj. I remember being really quite impressed with the fact that, you know, literally anybody could come to him. And they did, you know, really random people just would, and he would welcome them and he would make them feel welcome. Um, in a way that perhaps they didn't see uh, in other places. And it's something that I've tried to learn myself in terms of engaging with students uh, and people who come for spiritual advice or counseling. Uh, and I've met people like that in different parts of the world. Um, but they're not always typical, I have to say. And again, sometimes it is down to you know people not wanting to take that sort of, um, quote-unquote, leap of faith to be able to open themselves up to that experience of talking with with a guide or uh, with the, with an imam or so on, um, but you know that's uh, that's part of the work. Um, I remember, I mean, just to give you a small sort of example, um, and this is from my own experience. I remember being at a at a track two. So a track two a track two conference will be um, uh, a place where high level officials and analysts. Um, uh, will meet uh, privately, uh, secretly, um, for all intents and purposes. They won't usually be heads of state. They sometimes will be ministers or just under that. And uh, I was at one of these uh, through my professional work. And uh, there was a rights activist who was there in another capacity, but it was a rights activist. Um, and uh, in that context, in that context, um, somehow got onto the subject of religion. Um, and I sensed that there was something that was burning there, um, a trauma that maybe um, she wanted to talk about but couldn't quite talk about, and also the, the overall environment and context is very strange, right, to be having that sort of discussion. Um, but, you know, so I let down my guard a little bit Sure, that actually you want to have this discussion, then we can. Um, and uh, I would not have expected that this would have been the place to have that discussion, nor, frankly, that she necessarily would have been somebody who would have wanted to have that discussion. She came from a completely different world. She was, uh, as I said, she was a rights activist. She wasn't somebody, I mean, I thought that she was Muslim because she came from a Muslim family, but, you know, not more than that. Um, uh, uh, That same person, you know, I know went on uh, to uh, to take the Wirt, um uh, she uh, had a deeply spiritual component in her life um, and may Allah guide her and guide us you know and I I understood completely why she never would have come to anybody else except that she felt comfortable in that sort of environment saying, okay no he's going to get me he won't agree with me, but he's going to get me
1: mm-hmm.
2: you know? and I think that's incredibly important and um, you know I was fortunate that I, uh, I had that opportunity, and it taught me a lot as well. Because I obviously had my own presumptions and assumptions, didn't I? Um, and I'm not sure if I'm not sure if we always think like that. I think that very often we will um, will sort of dismiss people uh, or cancel them out before they even said a word. Um, and I think that's I think that's not really living up to the uh, the wisdom of our tradition.
1: And by taking, you said the weird, that i.e. that formal affiliation with a spiritual path. Is that what you were referring to? Um,
2: so, I mean, if I'm being very specific, it was, uh, as I recall, it was uh, but she did take the word and she did continue with it, and she persevered with it, and every, every so often I do hear from her about that. Awesome. Um, and, uh, that's, that's not really in doubt for me. Um, uh-huh. But there are many others like that. I mean, I know... I know of, you know, extremely, um, I mean, I'm not going to name names, they're private, but, you know, people who have been extremely accomplished in their realms of activity, um, and I know they took tariqah, okay, Uh, but you'd never guess it, you'd Mm -hmm. never guess it by looking. But they took it, and they took it because they, they found somebody who could actually speak to them on their level, and they knew that even though they weren't perfect, like none of us are perfect, they always knew they'd be welcome. They always knew they'd be welcome. Um, and I don't know how many people really feel like that anymore, that they can look at a teacher or they can look at, you know, uh, somebody from the ulama and feel, okay, I'm scum. So there's no way they're going to talk to me. Um, or if I do go talk to them, then they're just going to judge me and make me feel that big. Um, and, you know, um, uh, at least with, with the teachers that I, I've i been blessed to, and grateful to have met, um, they know how to make people feel like you know as you say a million bucks you know uh within you know a minute of meeting them um and that's prophetic you know and it's something that i think a lot of us have lost
0: Mashallah, mashaallah if, if you don't mind i'm going to i'm going to just jump in here uh real quick Can everybody hear me i think i got cut out there for a second but alhamdulillah okay first i want to make sure that our, our audience knows uh, to be taking notes and to be taking notes on your questions. We have a Q&A function for those of you who are registered, but we're also monitoring our Facebook, our YouTube feed. So if anybody has a question or a comment, uh, we will be getting to those in just about another 15 minutes, inshallah. And so we definitely want to hear from you. So please take your notes, write your questions, and uh, our hosts from uh, Medina Institute will field them to us. Um, look, I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to channel my political activist spirit in me. As you both know, I, I wear multiple hats and alhamdulillah, I'm a student of Sheikh Nino'i and I'm also uh, a director of research and advocacy at CARE, which is an extremely vocal vocal advocacy and activist organization at the center of just about every kind of news cycle you can think of We're we're there. So look, I'm gonna quote and channel uh, a mentor uh, and a spirit for many of us and that is uh, Malik Shabazz, brother Malcolm X. And he is quoted and reputed to have said that, look, if uh, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. And so politics for many in our community today, with the geopolitics that exist in our world, with the famines, with the diseases, with the blockades, with the wars, with the with the refugee crises. You, I mean, you look at places like Yemen, you look at the poverty that exists in the world. I personally, I personally have studied Muslim humanitarian work for quite some time. And, and did you know that over seventy percent of humanitarian aid flows from around the world? I don't care who's donating it. Over seventy percent come from the West and flow to Muslim societies. Mm. Our Ummah globally is overwhelmingly impoverished. We have the majority of failed states in the world. The majority of conflicts in the world exists either within or on the on our borders. We are in a pretty desperate state. Some of that is externally. You know, uh, imposed. Some of that is internal. You know, internal. But it begs the question that politics has has to, at some point, be inevitable. Political engagement has to be inevitable. I, is it necessary? Um, and if so, then the question isn't if, but the question is how. So, Ostanas Zainab, you you yourself, you're you know, I'll I'll, be, uh, I'll disclose it. You know, your father is a mentor of mine. Uh, somebody who came out of uh, came out of context of the global Islamic movement, uh, mashallah. You know, a student and a colleague of many around the world, spending time in Iran, in in Europe, in London, in South Africa with colleagues. I've learned so much from him. Um, and Dr. Hisham, many people in your own circles are colleagues and friends of mine that are extremely active and vocal people in high and low levels of politics or different levels. So. Is it really just a question of of how and not if? I mean, I want to push and ask, you know, what is it that's going on? Why can't we get more uh, more students of knowledge interested in social and political engagement? And I'm gonna, you know, you can push back and say that that's a perception or that's a false assumption of mine. But I I need to hear from it because in my community of political actors and activists, there is some kind of rift. And so so what's going on?
1: That's a very that that's actually a kind of a delicate question, there, Dr. Abbas. You know, what's so interesting for me, and if I may, Dr. Hisham, I just want to say a couple of things about my, you know, my own family background. This dichotomy between being uh, religious and being politically engaged was something that didn't actually exist in my household the way that that I was raised. So. I think for the audience to know a little bit a little bit about my family is is I think is helpful. So my parents both converted to Islam first my mother then my father. This is in the mid 1970s, and within about uh, I think yes within about five years or so within within five years so they're new Muslims right within five years of their conversion to Islam. Then in 1979 they're just riveted by what's what happened in Iran with the with the Islamic Revolution. So. And uh, and and also, my sister and I were born around that time. So for us, again, there was no uh, there was no dichotomy between um, being religious and being politically engaged. In fact, the assumption always was was that in order to be um, really kind of sufficiently theologically committed as a Muslim, that you had to be engaged and you had to uh, be be kind of actively, Um, not just educating yourself but educating others and organizing around issues especially issues having to do with justice having to do with um i think um shining a light on 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 the struggles for freedom and and self-determination in the muslim world kind of linking that back to the struggle of african americans here in this country you know this is really the kind of culture that I, i i grew up in so what was very interesting for me um you know, Dr. Abbas and Dr. Hisham is that, you know, having from the very beginning, having had this very kind of activist orientation to Islam, you know, and then finding ourselves living in various places in the Middle East, right, and living in societies that were really almost diametrically opposed. I won't say where we were, but, you know, being in one place that was, you know, sort of um, a society very much kind of shaped around a certain amount of revolutionary kind of fervor, and then being in another country where all discussion of politics was completely, um, um, well, completely verboten. I mean, it was just completely off the table because of the sensitivities of of even discussing politics, even in a very superficial way. Um, And what's so interesting in, in, in that second scenario, you know, my teachers, so what's so interesting is that my, my, my teachers actually in, after my parents, my teachers in Islam, my teachers my teachers in Usul, had to be, I think, um, almost, you know, for survival considerations, they actually had to be apolitical. So my point because of, is, the,
0: because of the context that they were in.
1: Yes, this was this kind of society where you could be easily kind of, yeah, yeah, kind of disappeared because of being uh, even superficially being political. So, you know, the, the thing that I that I found very um, I think eye opening about both experiences in a place you, where you could be overtly political within parameters, and a place where you have to be apolitical, is that it gave me exposure to these different points of view and the and and, and really what shaped these uh, this this these these worldviews, and it actually gave me a lot of appreciation for those alama that were able to engage in politics and those who were not able to engage in politics. So, you know, kind of fast forwarding today, you know, seeing this 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 sort of dichotomy and this, again, this perception that for students of alam, of, of for the talab al-alam that we have to have a certain amount of, what's the word kind of being above the fray or detachment. I think what we need to understand is that where does that quietism actually come from? Sometimes it's a choice, but sometimes it's actually something that is kind of imposed on us because of larger external circumstances. If that's the case, it's actually being able to address the circumstances that produced what people often perceive to be a very quietist Sunni theology.
0: Oh, I see. That's actually extremely helpful. It would help us build patience and understanding of one another. As well, Dr. Hisham, is politics inevitable? Should we get engaged in, is the question just about how? Or is there a question if? So on a completely abstract level, I don't believe that
2: there's really anything called apolitical. Okay, on an abstract, absolute level, I don't think that's, uh, that's entirely dishonest. Because unless you're living, you know, a thousand miles away from anybody else in the middle of the desert, and, has, and where you're living is a completely ungoverned space that isn't the subject of even territorial dispute, then you're impacted by politics one way or the other, okay? Um, and the question is whether or not you engage with it or you don't, but that doesn't make you apolitical because by not doing something is an actual political decision, by doing something is also a political decision. Um, but that's, that's on a very abstract sort of level. And what I mean by that is that people live in very uh, very contextualized circumstances, right? And I agree with everything that what I said, that Zainab just said, but I mean, I might even make it a bit more complicated and complex. Um, you, um, uh, There's somebody who I, I cite a lot in my own work, uh, Sheikh Aina Da'afat, Rahimullah, um, who is um, uh, known as Sheikh Thawra, okay? He's known as Sheikh Thawra in Egypt, um, because he was this great azhari sheikh um who was actually killed at the end of 2011 uh for participating in civil disobedience um and he was killed during um you know the put down of that by the state um and he had been in Tahrir Square uh during the uprising in January and February of 2011 so we we all remember that. um something that you know is also true about him, is that he was Amin al-Fatwa at Dar al-Iftah al masriya Okay? Um, so he, he he worked in a government institution. Okay? Um, now, that was his context. That's who he was. Okay? And I don't believe that he was compromising himself by doing that. He was trying to do the best that he could do with what he had where he was. Okay? Um, and, you know, I... Uh, uh, I wrote about this in a book that I did on on Egypt about that you know you have the Husseini model, um, you have the Hassani model, okay, and the Husseini model will be somebody who is very actively and openly um, and deliberately uh, speaking or doing against uh, oppression, okay, um, and then there's the Hassani model. Um, Of somebody who is still against the oppression, but has taken the very deliberate moral decision, ethical decision to not go up against it because of the uh, proper concern uh, that if they were to do so, that it would invite more oppression, not less. Okay, And both of those are, in my opinion, completely legitimate and uh, righteous uh, positions to hold and uphold. Um, Where I think things get far more uh, sticky and ugly is when people try to take a quote-unquote ethical position, and I put that in big quotation marks, where they actually actively support oppression, saying, well, this is the you know, this is something that we should do for X or Y. Um, and unfortunately, I think some people have taken that decision, uh, which I find regrettable to say the least. But I think that you you just have many different circumstances that characterize how people live, okay? So, you know, you're talking about the difficulty of, um, of getting uh, maybe people who are engaged in religious life or spiritual life um, into uh, the political not necessarily becoming politicians, but just to be involved on, a, on an activistic sort of level. And you know as well as I do, and I know you don't disagree with this, uh, that there are so many different ways to get involved in your community. And I think that community activism is certainly something that people um, will, uh, will find very difficult to avoid if they're really sincere about their religious commitment. You know, one of our Sheikhs told us once that the, uh, the way of Ahl al-Bayt is khidmah and mahabbah, okay is service and love how are you going to do khidmah if you don't engage with the people that are around you okay and engaging with the people around you is is a type of community activism okay um if you don't want to use the word activist then you know that's fine you know uh, it, it doesn't matter like imam khazali says you know it, the the names of the things aren't important it's the meanings of the things that are important so you know people can get involved in political matters in very different ways um, but I will say that sometimes people make very, very deliberate decisions to, um, to let's say, take a Hassani approach or a more distant approach for very good reasons. You know, um, uh, it might be that they are uh, judges. Okay, um, you know, if you're if you're a judge in the United States, if you're a Muslim judge in the United States, um, are you really going to be in a position to pontificate? About uh, political issues, um, you're probably not, because that will that actually um, interferes with your function as a judge, right? We don't
0: want them to do that. Actually, no, right? no, it's, it's not good for the it's not good for the integrity of the not, system, right?
2: Exactly, right. So there are going to be certain situations where you don't want that, and that that's actually not a good thing. Um, but again, there are going to be other situations where you don't even have that choice. Okay, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, so the Zena was talking about some of her. Her teachers, uh, presumably in Damascus. Um, I knew, I knew just a a very simple man in uh, in Cairo um, who wanted to organize, just organize. He just wanted to organize for literally the collection of rubbish, literally the collection of rubbish. And he was told by the security service at the time, this was under Mubarak, Main fashion, not going to happen. Because if you can organize for that, I mean, this was the thinking, I suppose. If you can organize for that, then you can organize for anything. Okay, so the, uh, sometimes the options don't even exist. Um, and one other thing that I'd like to say, you know, just, just again to put a little bit of color uh, to the discussion. Um, Alhamdulillah, we, we, I, I think everybody on this call, we've had the opportunity um, and the, the blessing, really. Of being able to exist and function and spend a good part of our lives, either as young people or as elder or older, um, in our lives in societies that aren't perfect but are uh, relatively open. Okay, where you're not going to get arrested if you walk out of your house and say something against the state. Okay, um, and I think sometimes we underestimate the trauma that happens to people who do not have that opportunity and have never had that opportunity and may not even realize that the trauma exists, may not even realize that the trauma exists. If you, if you, Mm -hmm. I mean, you both spent time in authoritarian states. If you spoke to people who grew up in those states um, and got into the system, they may be very, 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 very good people, but living through that system is actually a very traumatic thing even if nothing actually physically ever happened to them it's actually a very traumatic thing and it creates a conditioning that they may have no idea they've ever been subjected to and it then impinges on how they engage with the world afterwards so it doesn't make it all right but I think that it's uh, it behooves us to realize that conditioning can take place And, and we shouldn't be arrogant about it because there's other conditioning that we all have as well okay um uh, I'm mixed-race, I'm not white, okay? Um, but as mixed-race, as the son of a white man, um, there's certain privilege that I enjoy, okay? Um, uh, and that's a conditioning. I need to recognize that. Alhamdulillah, I exist, in, uh, I exist at a time where I can think about that and I can try to, to take that into account. Um, there'll be many people, and we know this, You know, there'll be many people who have that privilege, whether because of their... Their race, or their gender, or their economic class, or whatever, um, and as a result, they've been conditioned in certain ways, and they have no idea. They have no idea. Allahumma arina al kama You know, as Imam Ghazali, um, you know, uh, may Allah
0: help us to see things as they are. You know. No, you know. Subhanallah, Subhanallah. Um, actually, it's a it's a good point that I just want to hone in for the for the viewers there. Ostana Zainab uh, brought it up. You brought it up that this Hassani model, and I, I love the fact that you, you make reference to the fact that this is in the sources of our deen, this is, is part of the foundational prophetic um, message of our deen, that the Hassani model sometimes is forced upon upon people, and it is a then wise... De- but then okay. it's not
2: Hassani. I, then it's not Hassani. So I, I know what you're saying, but I, I, want, I want your you're listeners to understand this. It, that if it's if, not
0: forced upon if you...
2: If it's forced upon you, okay... It's not as in it? Not as in... So, um, how do I put this? There will be people that they have to make that choice in order yeah. to avoid fitna.
0: Yeah.
2: Okay? There'll be others who will say that they're making that choice. Yes. But really, it's actually in support of an oppressive yeah, exa- system. Exactly. And they don't exactly. want to admit it. They yeah. have to, you know, this is something okay. else entirely and, you know nothing to do exactly
0: with exactly and on the same note on the same note we also have people and movements that will lay claim to the husseini model but in fact it's a pursuit of raw power i'd like mm-hmm. to make sure that we we add that there is that I- it is not it is not simply the case that anybody who bears who bears the righteous call for social engagement or political engagement and wants to raise muslim Muslims in some kind of position of power or uh, rectify in the name of this or in the name of that, that if they're pursuing the Hosseini model, that they cannot also be corrupted by sort of worldly interest. Um, and so both the Hassani and Hosseini model, mashallah, we have to recognize they are both valid and legitimate approaches to social political engagement, but both of them can also be very quickly um, subjugated and exploited in certain in certain instances. Uh, before I move to the next question, uh, Doctor Hisham, could you just uh, uh, remind for our our audience as well as myself the name of uh, Rahim, Rahimahullah, the uh, the Sheikh that you mentioned that you quoted at the beginning of uh, the answer to this question. Sheikh Ahmed Affat.
2: Sheikh Ahmed Affat, Rahimahullah. Rahimahullah. Okay. So. Uh, I've actually got a, got a
0: question. I
1: mean, All I right. don't know. This is necessarily the, the 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 scope for today's discussion. Please, but please. I, My sense is that we're still really struggling, especially here in the North American context, to really come up with an idea of what does effective political activism even look like? I mean, what model should we be embracing? So, you know, several times South Africa has come up, and I think rightly so. I remember several years back, Dr. Abbas, when you first had the ambassador at Georgia State, you know, that was just really eye-opening. Listening to the ambassador, you know, Ibrahim Rasul discuss his experience in South Africa and, um, you know and and working alongside nelson mandela and you know for you know again for the daughter of converts to islam where that their orientation to islam was very much about sort of we need to be you know sort of wedded to what's happening globally uh in muslim societies but perhaps less of an emphasis maybe in kind of what's happening here within the society. You know, and that struggle, like many converts from that generation will tell you, they really kind of struggle to reconcile those identities, Muslim and American. And, you know, and also that sort of, you know, it was definitely Salafist in, in its origins, but it kind of became the default mode of looking at politics here amongst Muslims in this, in this country that 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 any type of participation is some form of, I don't know, shirk or what have you. So, mm. um, you know, it was again, very interesting Listening to the ambassador and the way he was very kind of organically discussing the involvement of South African Muslims in politics, as Dr. Hisham said, um, you know, really kind of around an issue that was not traditionally Islamic in terms of the, the apartheid. And the cause of freedom in South Africa, but just again seeing the very sort of natural way the ambassador talked about that. So my sense is that we're still really kind of trying to find a model that actually makes sense for us here in North America.
0: Yeah, I, I believe the same. And actually, I'll riff into it for just a moment. Um, but I, I do believe that I do believe that the generation, for example, of your parents. Um, and the and the generation that that led to the you know the you know the anti-apartheid struggle and and whatnot. This was very much part of a global anti-colonial, decolonial consciousness in which ideas of Islamic justice were were just sort of imbued. and there, and you could read, you know, Islamic thinkers and Islamic intellectuals alongside national liberation scholars. Which is why I, for example, you'll see me reading Shariati and Frantz Fanon and teaching that, you know, as a as an appendage to, let's say, a tradition, you know, let's say a seminary asks me to come and teach those texts. Because I believe that there's some kind of affinity there. They don't come from the same source, but there's some kind of overlap there. In the United States, I'll say uh, markedly in the last 20 years especially, there has been a, um, a hard transition away from any global framework. Of consciousness, that is both on the political, colonial, decolonial side, as well as, as well as in terms of our intra-Muslim politics, we have unfortunately, um, we have unfortunately begun to center a kind of American identity-based politics in our discourse, and this can be along racial, ethnic lines, immigrant, you know, generational lines, uh, issues around our own politics. But there are these increasing questions about, or incre- increased, increasing like accepted frameworks of Americanness first, instead of let's say membership in um, a global society of Muslims or even a global society of, of uh, even a global consciousness. Forget about sort of the Ummah talk. There are international frames of politics that are pursued in different contexts. In the United States, we've very much resorted to a kind of. American Muslim exceptionalism, and it's, it's almost in, uh, inherent in, in all of our discourses. And, and so, this idea that Muslims in America will somehow um, will come up with some magic, you know, magic formula that we can then go and revive the rest of the Muslim world. Uh, there, there's that is that is quite far off of where we, I think uh, the conversation needs to go right now. It, it deserves larger reflection. Um, but I appreciate you bringing it up. We have not answered those questions. And just for, just for the record, uh, for any audience members or anybody viewing and yourself, and, uh, and maybe we could have a, a question back. A centered discussion about the experience of South African Muslims, I believe would be, would be of great benefit to, uh, to understanding Muslims in America. And Muslims in America benefit greatly about sort of how to orient themselves at this moment even more than a, a question of, of how Muslims in the UK have done it. I think we've all sort of, you know, so, sort of thought about these different models, but I think the South African case deserves some kind of special recognition and special reflection. I am going to jump ahead um, on, uh, on and I'd like to ask if we could move through these quickly so we can make sure we get some questions uh, involved. Before
2: we do, uh, before we do, would you mind if I just said one thing about what you just said there in terms of centeredness? Because I think it's important for your audience. Um, if I could just take one minute, um, okay. so I, I may come from uh, come from a different uh, frame when it comes to this, just on the basis of my upbringing, um, because um, I, as I said, I'm um, I'm half Arab and I'm half English, um, so I had a very different perspective, I think, to how political life and engagement in the UK. Um, should actually be done as compared to you know, many, many Muslims that I knew. Um, and uh, I'm glad that you bring up the South African example because it's a very organic one. Okay? Um, these concerns around identity, you know, South African versus Muslim versus Ummah blah, blah. None of, none of this means anything at all, and at least not in the communities that, that I spend any time, any time in in that country. Um, it's just far more regularized and and normalized and very organic. Um, and I think a key reason for that, frankly, is um, when we and you you didn't do this, today, but I, I just want to say this that when when we fail to center our sense of being Muslim as a world view, as an approach to understanding what. The world actually is what the universe actually is, our relationship with our Lord, then we can then turn these, we can then turn ourselves into, uh, into competing categories. Um, and when categories compete, they will collide, and they will conflict. Um, when we center our understanding of, quote-unquote, "Muslim identity of being indeed a way of being. Okay, um, and I use the word worldview very deliberately. Um, it's the uh, it's it's the word that uh, one of my teachers said Naqib al Atas uses when he describes understanding, you know, religion. Okay, um, when we do that, when we center our quote unquote identity as relating to that meeting, to that time before time where all the souls are gathered. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala asks Alastu And we say "Bala Shahidna.
0: Bala.
2: That's Muslim identity right there. I don't know any other Muslim identity than that. Maşallah, maşallah. I really don't. And when you do that, then I think that these these uh, these issues about categories um, just sort of fade away. It doesn't mean that we don't have a connection to each other. You know, it just it just means that things get put into their right place. And when they are then I think a lot less confusion takes place. Um, South African Muslims, just to give you an example, are incredibly, incredibly connected to international causes, um, are very active in that way, um, but it just comes across as far more organic. And, you know, you mentioned this whole, you know, centeredness of Americanness in the the American uh, Muslim community, which I've seen. Um, But I have to tell you, I've also seen um, American Muslim institutions or organizations or figures get very involved in foreign uh, proxy uh, conflicts. We have okay. no idea what um, you're talking and, about. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, on, and on different sides of it as well, right? Course, and it's not just in the U.S., it could be all over the place.
0: It's um, a, I mean, we're we're the center of empire. And so American Muslims actually, yeah. you know, you know, because of the sort of center of empire, center of geopolitics, I believe these, these weigh in uh, a little bit more. But now, inshallah, this is a teaser for us to continue the conversation. I would very much like to, uh, to, uh, you know, encourage the Medina Institute hosts, if they, if they find these conversations, uh, you know, compelling, maybe they will continue them and uh, we can, we can bring this one back. But let me jump, let me jump into uh, the kind of closing rounds of our conversations. Uh, I'd like to, you know, be res- respectful of your times. So uh, maybe just about another twenty minutes or so, f- so for the full conversation. Um, but look, right now we are extremely polarized. We live in an age of cancel culture, and now we're c- trying to cancel cancel culture. And there's discussions all around the globe about uh, sort of our discourse. Our umma is not is not uh, is not insulated from these things. Like you just mentioned, geopolitics is affecting the way our diasporal communities and mar- and you know kind of. Communities all around different parts of the world are engaging each other. We've always had difference. It's not a big deal, okay? Alhamdulillah, it's a show, in my opinion, it's a sign of vibrancy. But there's a particular tone of uh, aggression, I would say, and polarization that exists within our ummah today. And so we have a great tradition of, you know, adab al-ikhtilaf. So what do you all believe um, right now is is sort of the adab of disagreement, um, of, of engaging one another, knowing full well that, that we stand on opposing sides. And I want to ask the question with high stakes. You know, there are major stakes at play, you know, where I believe that you are posi- you are taking a position that is immoral, unjust, and may actually be leading to my direct oppression. I mean, that kind of difference is what I'm asking for. Not about a difference over, you know, our salat or, you know, our turuk or our madhab or, uh, you know, opinions here or there. I'm talking about a serious difference. How do we manage serious difference? So the zenith. Bismillah.
1: Bismillah, Rahim. So you know, for the reference of our audience here, that was verse 172 of chapter seven, Al-Araf, uh, that um, Dr. Hisham mentioned. What a beautiful ayah. Um, this is, uh, you know, this is. I don't, I don't know. I think Dr. Abbas, this question that you're asking. You're probably asking it, I mean, I'm going to say that you're asking this question of people that are probably not very likely to engage in this type of polemical discussion in a, you know, sort of very disagreeable way to begin with. Um, It would probably be a a little bit livelier if we actually had, uh, you know, one of those kind of like internet armchair quarterbacks here. But um, yeah, so this, um, well, first of all, let, let me say this because i I'm not necessarily in that space of um, where I feel that I'm able to maybe separate my own kind of like uh, what's the word personal personal kind of almost revulsion that I feel at certain uh, viewpoints that have been expressed from what is the actual proper etiquette governing how I should actually express my disagreement in other words it, it you know am i am i be getting angry on the on this uh, you know, on behalf of my nephews, or am I getting upset, um, you know, for larger principled reasons? If you think about the Prophet وسلم, you know, we were told that he never became angry for himself, والسلام, but only because of intihak um, uh, hurmatullah, because, you know, the boundaries of Allah Ta'ala were, were transgressed and that's when he would um, manifest a certain response to that. So that's why for me, Dr. Abbas, just to be honest with you, I've, I've really kind of avoided, you know, kind of wading into these discussions, these debates, you know, because I don't really, again, I don't really know that I can really kind of separate out what is kind of irritating me personally from what principles should we be getting at here? You know, having said that, though, there is something about this sort of the, the, the medium itself, right? So that it's very easy to sit behind a computer screen and be combative, um, you know it's it's but it's it's very different when you're actually sitting there with that person you know I think for I, I remember for example this is probably maybe was it last year maybe two years probably two years ago um, when the Brett Kavanaugh hearings were, were taking place and there was a scholar a well-respected scholar a pioneer of Islam in America who expressed certain um viewpoints about the criteria for witnessing in Islam and the post that he made just I mean it, what it elicited from the audience was just it was just dismaying to see the vitriol people were heaping on this scholar because he disagreed with him. So there's something about the medium itself which really needs to, to, to give us pause. However, I think that there are people such as yourself or Dr. Hisham that you could I think that you have this sort of. Um, ability to actually go out and critique someone's stance on the basis of principles. See, for me as a woman, it can be a little bit tricky in that when I have tried to do that, you know, I've often been told I'm being emotional or irrational or being absurd or what have you. So my tendency has actually been to kind of disassociate myself from various, um, you know, sort of organizations when I have felt that having my name there is going to lend support to odious Mm. points of view. But I do wish there were a more constructive way of tackling these issues.
0: And that's actually, that's a very moral and uh, mashallah, it's a a very respectable type of approach. And alhamdulillah, I'm actually quite happy that you have not waded into these discussions, Osela Zainab. I would hate for you, uh, you know, to, uh, to, you know, to be tarnished by these these types of things. Um, You know, so uh, Dr. Hisham, uh, unlike... uh, Ustaz uh, Zainab, who has managed to uh, stay above the fray on this, I know that uh, you've been at the center of a lot of sort of discussions uh, because you take principled positions on a number of difficult uh, issues and topics. And and I myself have, um, I, I'm asking this question in many ways because I have actually given in to my nafs and, uh, and used my platforms, even just in my small circles, to speak in ways that I regret about uh, about certain scholars or about certain individuals, or engage people in ways that I probably wouldn't if I was in person, and so uh, it's been a learning experience for for me as well. Uh, and so I've got a few comments. But Dr. Hisham, um, how have you been? Have you managed to wade through the cancel culture and the polarization in our community and still maintain a kind of adab b'ichtilaf in our in the, in the spirit of our ummah?
2: So I mean, there are a few things. One, um, uh, I don't know if I've been successful. Um, so I appreciate sure that you think that I seem to have been, but I, I don't know if I would agree. I think that we're I, still friends. I, alhamdulillah. um uh, I hope uh, I hope that I've tried my best, um, but I don't know if that was sufficient. Um, I don't think I've ever really uh, gone down the cancel uh, sort of route, um, uh, and it might have been that in some times I should have done so. A Law Island. Um, I think that that's also a legitimate question. Um, I do think that, generally speaking, these mediums, and I'm glad that you brought that up, um, these mediums are are maniacal. These mediums are uh, repugnant to the development of human understanding, really. Mm -hmm. um, There are people that, in person, that I've met, who will be completely different than their online personalities, who would say things online that they would never dream of saying in person, and sometimes out of cowardice, but also sometimes just because they they wouldn't ever dream that that would be something appropriate for them to say. Okay, whereas online will be, you know, keyboard warriors par excellence and in extremely poor ways. And then on the flip side, you'll have people who will say that that you know there's no adab in this, uh, but what they really mean is we don't want you to say this stuff. We don't want the critique, so we're going to hide behind the add-up card. You know, Um, there are are both of these angles that I think need to be taken into account. um, Because I do think that sometimes critiques are necessary. um, But it's also about how you make those critiques and who makes them. So um, uh, over the past uh, 10 years or so, um, I've spent a lot of time uh, in the Arab world, and seeing critiques about what's happening in the Arab world um, by people who, frankly, don't have any skin in the game at all. You know, the whole thing could blow up and burn, um, and they would cry about it, but then they would just go back to, to their homes and their jobs um, on the West Coast or the East Coast or, or whatever in the United States. Um, so it's, it's just too easy for them to sort of pontificate from their couches or from their desks while real people are actually suffering the consequences on the ground of being tortured or imprisoned, um, and so on, you know. Um, so on, on some levels, um, I'm afraid that when it comes to this, uh, uh, that kind of medium, um, uh, increasingly I find very little utility in engaging with it. Uh, I tend to include my critiques um, in uh, in conversations like these, in pieces I write where I can put context to it. Um, But, you know, the whole sort of social media thing, um, I increasingly find less and less and less utility in it. And also a regrettable impetus of just trying to tear things down. You know, I don't want to tear things down. I want to try to build things up as much as I can. Um, And if there's stuff that's wrong, then I want to try uh, to fix it. And build it up. And if I think that it's not worth fixing or it's not worth building up, then I'll just leave it. خلاص, I don't need to be involved in that. You know, I'll just say, you know, thank you very much. I'm I'm not interested. I'm not going to be involved in helping you. alaikum. You know, uh, may Allah guide you and guide me. Um, but I I see and and this I think all of us can relate to. Um, where there's innuendo that's put out there, uh, where there's, uh, you know, accusations that are made without any, any real backing, um, it, it's not very helpful. Um, and if there is injustices taking place, you know, there was, um, there was a beautiful effort, I felt, there was a beautiful effort that was made uh, by uh, Dr. Ingrid Mattson, uh, Imam Mohammed Majid, And I think there were others, I apologize. I think there were others who were involved in this initiative, but I can't remember their names. And there was a particular imam, he wasn't an imam, he was some preacher in uh, another part of the country, and they went to try to mediate because um, certain accusations had been made against him uh, in terms of certain improprieties um, uh, within his community. And uh, they tried it. I I find this to be very laudable, in the end, it didn't seem to, uh, to stop what had happened because I think that person just went on and kept on like, you know, I mean, he was censured and he apparently agreed to like stop doing things. But A and Ken, you know, the point is that you want to do something constructive, then go do that, you know, go do something that's real because it's more than just like sitting on Facebook and, you know, writing, writing up posts or, you know, tweeting tweets and then you switch, and then you just close your laptop down, and you just walk off, and you go and you know watch TV or you know play video games or something. You know, go do something. Go do something real. You know, you're you're concerned about a particular issue, then please go do something about it. You know, stop wasting your time. You know, sort of quote, canceling. You know, on on the basis of what? Like what? What do you really have? If if this issue genuinely concerns you, go do something about it.
0: Go do something. No, actually, about that's a no. That's a, that's 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 helpful, and I want to i want to be able to tell the audience that for example um, even uh, you know at the time I, I still don't think i had actually met you yet dr hisham um or what have i done now one of the things that uh, one of the things that was really uh, demonstrative to me of proper adab and excuse me for saying this in your presence you know i, I don't mean to embarrass you but is that um, a kind of genuine sincere nasiha to build a relationship with me on a point for example that you disagreed with right? So I was taking a position on something online. And instead of combating me online, you made the effort to engage me personally. Now, we had a relationship already somehow, but, you know, to to engage with me offline through phone calls, through text messages, to have a sustained discussion, to actually learn about one another and, uh, and make clear sort of the source of the disagreement. To me, that's the way that we should manage our differences right now, if we are actually going to engage with one another. So, Alhamdulillah, let's stay away from the kind of bickering online. Um, and if and when we do engage, to do so with a, with a genuine interest in building that relationship. I remember years ago, I was on an ISNA debate that was staged by uh, by ISPU, and Alhamdulillah they uh, you know I was invited to to speak on the panel. I, it was a, at a very contentious time in our community about CVE, MLI, etc. And we were asked to basically demonstrate what healthy debate looks like. And I have mm-hmm. to say, for the most part, I thought that was a very constructive uh, constructive session. It was passionate, it was committed, it was principled, um, but the person sitting on the opposite side of the, uh, the two people actually sitting on the opposite side, side of the debate field from my, are still close friends and colleagues of mine. And they still hold positions that I would find objectionable, but mm-hmm. never do I impugn them as individuals um i make it clear to them individually and in public that i may take a different position but at Mm -hmm. the end of the day i have to trust over and over and over again that most of the people i disagree with fully believe in themselves that they are that they are doing the right thing and i have to give respect to to that position somehow if somebody's acting out of malice and i believe that they're acting out of malice then i probably shouldn't engage them in the first place right so alhamdulillah, I think uh, you think proper intention on these things is a, a is a good starting point. If you don't mind, I'm going to go ahead and jump ahead. Into I just a, want to say
2: one. Uh, I'm oh, sorry. Please go forgive go me. But there's just one thing I was saying that I, I, I saw that debate. I thought that was actually a very good example of what you just said. And I think that most of the time, that's exactly how things ought to be, um, where we can hold you know particular positions. And on and on. MLI, I think you and I have a very similar position. Um uh, and I'm not. I'm not relating this to MLI or, or CVE. The, there will be other times where it becomes a lot more difficult, because literally blood has been spilled.
0: Yeah, of course, of course. Um, uh, and I know that
2: very well. Okay, because I've lived through that. Uh, particularly when I came to Egypt, I lived through that. Um, but really, like ninety percent of the time, that's not what it is. Nine percent—that's not what it is—and and I pray that nobody who watches this will ever be in in that ten percent of the time. It's a horrible, it's a horrible, horrible, horrible thing to have to deal with. You know, I live through that, so and uh, I, I do think that, uh, however, most most of the time, that it's precisely that we can have disagreements, and I think that that's entirely healthy um, as long as uh, as we just keep certain. Uh, uh, certain things clear. And you made very cutting, cutting, cutting criticisms in that debate. Um, but I don't think you crossed the line. Um, and um, uh, I think you won that debate.
0: Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> just, oh, oh, sorry, Zeta, go ahead, please. I was just going to ask if you had something to say.
1: Uh, yeah, I just want to underscore that it's very important that, we're, that we have the ability to separate between, you know, sort of Stances people take at actual personalities, right? I mean, I can't speak to people's motivations, you know, this idea that we need to, you know, sort of kind of viciously assail someone's character because if we disagree with them, you know, of course, I, I have nothing to do with, 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 with that type of um, approach. I just really want to emphasize that it's not about the person. It, it, it's, it's, it's about the stance maybe that they've taken um, that I think might be one that's just not, uh, to be honest, in the best interest of our community. Having said that though, I think that the example that Dr. Hisham mentioned of Dr. Madsen, again we need to look at does 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 our activity is 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 there baraka in this? You can see the baraka in the work that she does, like the Hurma project, you know, so Yes you know, so she took, I mean, she followed that prophetic approach of going and actively advising the people that were involved in those different cases. And then now what she's doing is a project that is so, it's so proactive, mashallah, it's actually educating religious leaders on the appropriate boundaries of interacting with congregations. So you can see the barakah, you know, the, the fruits and the efforts, alhamdulillah, and that's when you know that you're onto something and the approach is correct, inshallah. I think that's a
0: great way. That's a great way to put it because you can even have like a fit three approach to this, you know, because you can sense if something has barakah or not when you start engaging in it, right? You kind of know. Um, and you, if you ask that question, Alhamdulillah, that can really get us there. So look, I have a question from the audience. we got to go for just a little bit longer. Again, audience members, if you have any questions, please provide them. Um, but this is a, a question, a hot button question here. And so I'm going to let you all handle this one. Um, the the audience member says jazakallah uh, khair for this thought provoking dialogue in recent years the term political sufism has been bandied about in the context of presenting sufism as quote unquote the good islam what are your thoughts on on uh, on these terms and about on, on, on that kind of reality so uh, again uh, sufism i will say again sufism has i've said this publicly has curiously sort of revived after 9-11 to be the sort of good Islam. Uh, talk to us as, as you know, what is Tasawwuf? Is Tassawaf the good Islam versus bad Islam? Well, Senator, please, I'm happy to hear from you.
1: Dr. Hisham, will take this one. I remember years ago, um, this was probably around 2007 or so, when the Rand Corporation put out that study and they basically sort of you know, it was really kind of like divide and conquer. Um, but if you actually go, if you look at, if you go back and you look at that report, you know, it's it's really interesting to actually see how those sort of lines of fragmentation have actually kind of played out in the American Muslim community. And I remember one of the things I distinctly re- remember reading in that report was it really did, did kind of reproduce this sort of this dichotomy of like the good Muslim, bad Muslim. And of course, the good Muslim was the one that was kind of like Sufi and mystically inclined um, you know, you know, there are people who kind of have their theories about that RAND report and if, if actual sort of government policy and funding was kind of enacted in the direction of that report. I won't I won't comment on that because I really can't. But I think that we need to be very careful when we buy into this language, right, of kind of good and reproducing these categories of good Muslim and bad Muslim. Because what we're doing is we're basically kind of it, sort of rendering Sufism as a monolith, and then we are fully anathematizing Salafism, and I don't agree with that approach. But I, I'd like to hear more from um, from Dr. Hisham, but I think as, you know, I, we need to also be careful based on what camp we're a we're part of, because based upon the camp we belong to, uh, this type of discourse can become very, very self-serving. Um, but let's, let us I'd like to hear from from uh, Dr. Hisham and Dr. Abbas about this.
2: So um, I remember, uh, I'm sorry, I keep on giving, bringing it back to Egypt because, you know, it played out a lot in Egypt, particularly during the revolutionary period between 2011 and 2013. Well, and, yeah, of course, um, Dunya. I'm not sure that's a compliment, but anyway. Um, so, um, I remember very clearly being, um, in, a, in a lecture, um, where, uh, a supporter of the MB, of the Muslim Brotherhood, I think he was actually a Muslim Brotherhood member, um, alongside, uh, a supporter of the military, they were both on the same side of this debate, and at that time that was, that was the norm, um, and then there were two activist types who were critical of the military and critical of the MB, they're on the other side, and uh, the Muslim Brotherhood guy said something, I don't even remember what this debate was about Um, I only remember that unfortunately one of the activists who's on the other side is now in jail Um, and he said something and then suddenly jumped up you know, people in the audience who then called him um, and his movement Tugar al-Din okay, um, religion merchants, mm. okay, um, and it really stuck with me because, you know, the the, the the audience members who made that critique were actually quite religious Muslims, okay, um, uh, but they didn't like the MB on a political level, they didn't say you're a terrorist and we should kill you and, you know, all of that, but they, they were not impressed with how they were using religion in that sort of way, and uh, I'll never forget this because you know, over the course of that year, that was 2012, over the course of that year, and then continuing on, 2013, 2014, you know, it seemed that uh, to be a a religion merchant was really an equal opportunity um, enterprise. Because it wasn't just the MB. It wasn't just Salafis. It was also people who claimed to uphold very normative mainstream Sunni Islam. Um, And uh, that was quite, you know, quite blatant um, in support of authoritarian policies, autocratic regimes um, of, of various types. You know, I could I could talk probably about every country within uh, the Arab world and broader, including places like Turkey and so on. You'll find people who, you know, they'll use religion to show um, to show backing for particular uh, for t- particular policies. Um and uh, that, to me, cheapens religion, to put it very bluntly, you know. Um, and uh, what I do find interesting is that you now have people who say that this is, this is a, um, almost an inevitable consequence of Sunnism, which I think is nonsense. I really think it's nonsense, you know. Um, I think the only way that you can really come to that conclusion is if you have an agenda about um, upholding another approach to Sunnism. And this is a way for you to you know, critique your opponents in that regard. Um, because historically it just doesn't bear that out. Um, and then people will bring in, you know, uh, you know, the idea of Khuruj al hakam withdrawing from the ruler, it's from Sunnism. It's like, yes, of course it is, but the Hakam means something very different in, you know, 1500 than it does in 2000, okay? The, uh, as well as the idea of khuruj. So, I mean, there are all of these things that people just sort of uh, copy-paste um, and sort of graft onto uh, new uh, new realities in ways that are really quite self-serving. So, um, uh, I, I, I don't think that any of this is particularly useful, but I do think that the phenomenon exists. I do think that you see people who... Um, will openly proclaim that they support you know, um, this very mainstream interpretation of Sunnism in terms of the madhahib and the Aqidah and Tasawwuf. And at the same time, they back truly bad authoritarian policies. Um, but um, uh, it's, it's sometimes, I have to be frank, it's sometimes kind of rich to see critiques come about people like that from, from sectors that, frankly, that's how they made their bread and butter for years okay um so th- as i said you know the the occupation of uh, uh of religion merchants of uh uh, uh just seems to be a very equal opportunity enterprise um I call it the uh the instrument uh, the instrumentalization of religion for partisan political purposes It's very lengthy and worthy i'm sorry yeah, um, very, very but that's what it is you just take religion you use it yeah. for uh, for raw power, that actually has nothing to do
0: with God and his prophets respect like, like we mentioned again the, the exploitation of the Hassani or Husseini models the genuine ex, you know yeah. the exploitation yeah. of those genuine models um, so you know to close this talking point out, ustada uh, Zainab mentioned that one of the major uh, one of the major disservices in this kind of framing is to assume that Tasawwuf and and Sufism has has been a monolith. And is a is a monolith in any way, and so Stathis Zainab, thank you for bringing that up, because, and also Dr. Hisham, for for bringing up the historical context. The fact of the matter is that for, for many reasons, and I'm still curious on how this amnesia happened, but somehow we've had this amnesia in our modern Muslim societies um, of the role of tasawuf in our in our communities historically, right? Like it seems like somehow modernization, 20th century, you can go to places in Damascus. Where people have never heard of Tasawaf, and then other people in the same class, same socioeconomic background, might have been raised and reared in it, right? Yeah, and so yeah. there's been an interesting phenomena there. Um, and if we relegate Tasawaf as one thing only and we characterize it as a quietist approach or somehow being apolitical, again, I do think that that kind of monolithic uh, approach, thank you both for bringing it up, is, yeah, uh, is not helpful. Real. It's just not it's real. Not real it's not we real you know Amun
2: Mukhtar Amun Mokhtar was a guerrilla fighter in Libya and he was a murid in the Sanusi Tariqa. okay maşallah, maşallah. Um, you know Imam Abel Shem
0: Kader, the, Abel, yeah, yeah, I, you, you,
2: you just go, I mean we can we can roll off names after names after names because that is the norm because that is the norm and it continues to be the norm today I mean if you look in Syria and you look at people who were involved in the uprising from 2011 onwards you had people who were in Tariqah who were involved in the uprising who were involved in fighting against the regime okay um, you had people in Libya who were fighting against Muammar Gaddafi. Who, you know I mean it just it, it yeah, just goes on and on and on and on I remember being in Tahrir myself and I knew that uh, I knew that Awrad were being read
0: MashaAllah I mean yeah, it's, I
2: it's just not you know, it's very silly. In my mm-hmm. opinion, it's very silly.
0: Actually, that's a, I think that's a that's a really important point, and maybe one that we can you know we can call upon our audiences and ourselves to think more about how do we engage our education and the way that we talk to ourselves, dialogue with ourselves, our own communities, to introduce this fine grain, these fine grains of nuance, and reminders constantly about the diversity and richness of our own communities, and work very hard to break. These stereotypes. One thing I'm very grateful for, for Medina Institute and Sheikh Ninawe is that I would be in a in a setting with Sheikh Ninawe and I would look around the table and I would realize that we had people from all of the different paths at the table. And it was because he always referred to our brothers and sisters of the Salafi, tariq, you know, of the Salafi path. He would say, "Our our Salafi brothers and sisters." And He would say, "Our Shia brothers and sisters," right? Our Hanafi brothers and sisters. And he wouldn't ignore the fact that we have this disf- difference, right? Mm-hmm. He would bring it there, but he would do it with love. And he would bring that difference ahead and, and refer to ourselves and each other with this kind of love and acknowledgement of our differences, but a priority upon treating each other with, what was it uh, Dr. Hishami mentioned? Mahabba and? khidma, And khidma. You know, to treat ourselves that way, to treat our societies that way. Um, I'd like to ask both of you in closing, and uh, excuse me to the audience members for not being able to continue with the q and want to be respectful to everybody's time but in closing if i could ask each one of you take a second to think about it um one book to read or one poem to read or one thing it doesn't even have to be an islamic thing one thing for us to read or do that would help us would help us sort of ground ourselves in in social commitment and spiritual commitment simultaneously. What is your go-to sort of reference? What is your go-to poem, book, or anything? Take a second if you like. There. <laughs> that's
2: what that's that's what I would say people ought to think about reading. Okay. It's the prologue Manah to the metaphysics of Islam and exposition of the fundamental elements of the worldview of Islam. Said Muhammad Naqib al Allah give him long life and health. I mean ameen.
0: So the work of Naqib al-Atas, inshallah, inshallah, yeah. more people will be able to benefit from, from his teachings and it would actually be something, um, maybe we could find, uh, you know, we could find some time to continue these conversations in an in-depth way with some of his readings as well. Zainab.
1: So I'm going to actually recommend, I mean, I know the title of our discussion was actually um, uh, more than dhikr, right? Not beyond dhikr, was, I think, more than dhikr, right? So uh, I just want to remind all of us that, right, we're not saying that we can uh, dispense with dhikr. I certainly hope that wasn't the takeaway for anybody. It's just that as we are sitting for dhikr, right, as we are hopefully, again, going back to this ayah and surat and nisa, if you actually look at this ayah here in the surah, right, after it, it, it describes for the Muslims how to pray, the 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 uh, the prayer salatul Khawf, or the the prayer of fear during uh, wartime, then the ayah goes on to remind us, right? And then when you've completed the prayer, then remember God, right? Standing and and sitting and on your sides.
0: A-mishallah. So the
1: point should be that that that, that being in the state of dhikr is not just something you're doing kind of like over there in isolation, right? in a, a corner of the room somewhere and it kind of like starts and stops there. How do we make sure that is permeating, you know, every aspect of our lives in terms of our closest social interactions, as well as what we are doing, inshallah. I pray that's a benefit out in our community. So I'm actually going to recommend this book, a little counter-intuitive, counterintuitively. This is Sheikh Abdel Ghani and Nabulsi's um, Virtues of Seclusion. Because I think that, in, you know, for those of you who are out there working in and in, in you know, on, say, on the front lines, these protests, working in communities, it's difficult to engage with people. We know what the Prophet ﷺ, there is, a, there is an amazing reward in the Akhirah for those who are out there engaging with people and being patient with people and being patient with, people being patient with people's harm. And, and and in order to be able to do that, you have to be able to rejuvenate yourself. So take a look at this book, The Virtues of Seclusion in Times of Confusion, right? Because remember, if you look at the model, of the Siraq, our, of our beloved Prophet alayhi right before he actually goes out there to deal with the Quraysh, to engage the Quraysh. He has that period in, 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 in the Jabal, the, uh, Jabal uh, al-Nur, in the Ghar Hiraat. So it's really important to think about the gift that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us to actually have this time of contemplation while we're all indoors. Now, Jazakallah khair,
0: that's a beautiful reminder. And, and it is another one of the uh, opportunities that we have before us. So may us, may, may us all be guided in in this uh, in, in this time, I will uh, I will close out in just a moment. But I'd like to bring up a story that kind of drive that point home uh, that you just brought up, Stata Zainab. There is a uh, an anecdote, and uh, either one of you can uh, can probably uh, tell me where I read this and where it comes from. But the the anecdote is as follows: It's a a group of students is asking their sheikh, their sheikh in tariqa, um you know, sheikh fulan fulan. His miracle, you know, his miracle is that, you know, his students say that he can walk on water. And so what is, you know, but you have not shown us any miracles. What is your miracle? So, the, you know, the students are interrogating their sheikh. And so the sheikh says, well, you know, uh, a bug can walk on water. You know, we are we are Bani Adam. We are in sin. Are you know, this is a small, this is a small act. And so they said, okay, okay, well, uh, sheikh so-and-so, his students say that he flies between their villages at night to visit them, and he says the smallest bird can fly between villages. That's just a, a thing from an animal. We are banning Adam. We're humans, and he said, and they say, okay. Well, what is your miracle then? He says I can stay in the suq all day and be in in commerce all day dealing with human beings, and the remembrance of Allah Subhanahu wa Taala will never leave my heart and tongue. And so. Uh, so subhanAllah, maybe, they, maybe this uh, you know these advices that you're giving to us and this nasiha that you can give to us is that um, we, we have to be engaged with, with uh, the humans and we have to re- be mindful of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and, uh, as And uh,
2: just to follow from your story, um, you also have to have people that can advise you, give you sincere advice and guidance. And without that, really, you know, it's not fault, but ma'akum. Uh, you know, God be with you. if You think that you can sort it out on your own without having a good counsel? Yes, yeah, um, subhanAllah.
0: My students and my students uh, <laughs> sorry. Sidetrack. My students in, in college and university and uni, as you all say. Um, when I would introduce, the, you know, the necessity of a of a murambi, you know, of a sheikh, uh, they would say, "Well, no, uh, we could just read everything ourselves." And I said, "Isn't this the pinnacle of uh, of arrogance? Is that the the sciences that tell you?" that yourself is the problem, you want to take that on by yourself. So subhanAllah. SubhanAllah. Ustada um, Zainab, if you wouldn't mind, um, if you wouldn't mind closing us out in dua, um, and before you do that, just uh, because I'll say salaamu alaikum after that, I want to say thank you, Dr. Hisham. Uh, thank you again, for, Ustada uh, Zainab, for joining us today. Before we close out, I want to remind the viewers that next week we have a very special event, same time, uh, 1 p.m. next week uh, at this time, uh, same same approach, same style. But next week, Ostad Zainab will be moderating a conversation, a very special conversation between the Medina Institute's own Sheikh Ninawi and Dr. Sayed Hossein Nasr. Sayed Hossein Nasser is a, uh, a, a is a giant in the field of academic study of Islam in the West. has a, uh, a far reach and far shadow, far influence on well, what Islamic knowledge is in the West over the last half century or so, and so it's an extreme privilege to put him in touch with our with with our very own Sheikh Ninoi. It is going to be a fascinating discussion. Please tell your friends, and thank you, Ustada Zainab, for volunteering to do that. So, if you wouldn't mind, Ustada Zainab, closing us out in dua. <laughs>
1: على سيد الانبياء والمرسلين محمد وعلى اله وصحبه اجمعين اللهم انت السلام ومنك السلام اليك يعود السلام فحيينا يا ربنا بالسلام وأدخل الجنة دار السلام بسلام تبارك وتعالى في الجلال والاكرام we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to open our hearts to Islam iman and ihsan we ask Allah subhanahu ta'ala to confer his blessings and protection and security upon all of those who gathered here today and their loved ones. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to bless all of us, our families, our teachers, our communities with, with good and strong health and safety and security and Iman and peace in our households and to allow us to respect properly our teachers and elders and to cherish our young ones. We ask. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to allow us to be of the ummah of the Prophet alayhi that ummah, that when he, alayhi wa alayhi wa alayhi wa alayhi wa sees us on Yom al-Akhirah, that he is uh, happy to welcome us as part of his ummah, we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to let the, the 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 last of our actions always be the best of our actions, we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to give us that husn al khitam, where the very last words on our tongues are a manifestation of what's in the heart, and that is La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah rabbika rabbil azati, amma walhamdulillahi rabbil alamin wa alihi al All right, Ameen, everyone. Ameen. Everyone. All right, take Jazakoum
0: care of May Allah preserve you both, extend you, and strengthen you both, inshallah. Talk to you again soon. Wa Ameen, take care.